There is a word called juxtaposition. It is a bigger word, a fancier word. It simply means two things being seen or placed close together with contrasting effect. So let me give you some examples of juxtaposition. Let me give you another example of juxtaposition. Sometimes, don't you love the government at work? It's just like, really? How does that work together? Now, let me give you another example of juxtaposition. All right? You see all these people on the beach, and if you look more closely, there are people out there just swimming, and this huge, huge storm front coming in. Now, let me give you another one. Last year, Arizona, 2018 dust storm coming in. I mean, that's juxtaposition, isn't it? You've got this wonderful line and then this cloud coming in. Today is like that. Today is a day of juxtaposition. Most people, when they think of Palm Sunday, they think of all the rejoicing, right? And it's cheering and it's just this big parade And as a matter of fact, when I think of Palm Sundays in my past, that's what I think about. It's just about cheering. But when you start to look at the text much more closely, it is a day of juxtaposition. It is a day of both rejoicing and weeping. That's what Palm Sunday is, a day of rejoicing and a day of weeping. Let me give you a little bit of context. Before Jesus has gone into Jerusalem, he's been in Jericho. And in Jericho, he has healed the blind beggars. And then he stopped at that famous wee little man, right? Do you remember? Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And to the sinner, he brought salvation. And then also we find in John's gospel, he also stopped and raised someone from the dead. Do you remember who that was? Lazarus, raised from the dead before he goes into Jerusalem. So in a very short order, we see juxtaposition. We see the blind to the sight. We see sin to salvation. We see death to life. So now Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and people are starting to wonder, who is this man? Maybe he really is the Messiah. Maybe he is the one who is going to come and redeem Israel. He is going to be the conquering hero. And so as they neared into Jerusalem, the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to come right then and there in a flash, so to speak. And so Jesus now tells them a different parable. He tells about the parable of a nobleman who is going far away to enter into his kingdom, to gain his kingdom. And this nobleman, when he goes away, he gives 10 minas, and this is the account here, 10 minas, which is about two and a half years worth of wages, by the way. This was a good sum of money. And for the ones who used what he gave them, the nobleman gave them, for those that he gave them, they used it well, he praised them. 
he praised them and said, well done. And thus there was rejoicing. But for those who squandered what now the king had gave them, he said this. He said, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the last parable that Luke records before the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Most commentators and most people want to skip this over because it seems too harsh, doesn't it? Can you imagine his disciples? Look, if, they were, if there was political spin, they were, they were like, whoa, hold on, Jesus. Wait, you really want to tell that one? Come on, you're the Messiah, right? Aren't we coming into Jerusalem? Aren't you coming into your kingdom? And you want to say this? Because people really didn't know who Jesus was. Yeah, they, they want to rejoice at Jesus. They want to rejoice in all of that, but they don't understand the fullness of who Christ is. Because in this world, there is rejoicing and there is weeping. So now let us go to our text. Again, starting with verse 28. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, from at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the coat. They set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, it's interesting. Up to this point, up to this point, Jesus has never requested any demonstration that he is the Messiah. In fact, there are accounts where he strictly forbade people to say anything that he was the Christ. But now, in this moment, coming in Jerusalem, he's acknowledging and having the people acknowledge who he is. And he doesn't do it to gain glory. He is doing it to let them know that there was a prophecy fulfilled by him doing this. It is from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, when you read the account of the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, there's a lot about this donkey. And you're thinking, why do they write so much about a donkey? It's because there's a prophecy fulfilled, and it says who Jesus is. 
Specifically, it had never been ridden before, had it? It's called out. It had never been ridden, never been sat on. The reason for this is, in the Old Testament, an animal that had not been used, not been used for work, was set aside for sacred use. Now, such an animal could be used for royalty. As a matter of fact, if you go to 1 Kings starting with uh, chapter 1, verse 32 through 40, you find that Solomon rode a mule for his coronation. King Solomon, the wonderful, wise king, rode a mule in for his coronation. So, from the line of David, Solomon, now to Jesus, who is, if you remember, from the line of David, he now rides in his coronation on an animal set aside for sacred use. The other thing you should know about donkeys is that, well, let's put it this way, in time of war, in a time of war, the king would often ride ahead or ride on a stallion, a steed, a powerful animal, And he would lead the people and encourage the people in conquering. But in a time of peace, the king could, didn't have to, but the king could or would ride in on a donkey, a mule, signifying that peace reigns throughout the land. And this is what Jesus did. He wanted to show that the king indeed was riding that it was a sacred ride coming in, and it was not one for war, but he was a king of peace. Isn't that what Isaiah prophesied? One of the titles for Jesus, right? We talk about this during Advent, during Christmas. He is the prince of what? He's the prince of peace. And what did the angels sing When Jesus was born that night, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. But this was not just a king of calmness. This was a king of peace. And this king of peace brought righteousness and salvation. In the war of sin and all of the destruction goes with sin itself the destruction, the depravity, the death, the open hostility towards God, Jesus the King, the Prince of Peace came. And the gift he brought in was righteousness and salvation. Jesus the King of Peace is different than what the social justice warriors want for peace. It is different than the pacifists who want Jesus as peace. It is different than what people think for Jesus coming so it will restore our national identity. Not only for Jerusalem, people want it here for America, but do they want the Prince of Peace coming who brings salvation, who brings righteousness? That's the King of true peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 and 2 says this, 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained by faith into his grace in which we stand. And what do we do? We rejoice because there's peace, right? We rejoice in the hope and glory of God. This is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday. The king, the prince of peace, bringing salvation, bringing his righteousness. Now, did the crowd understand that? No, they did not. Verse 37, as they drew near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Though they praised him and said peace, they still didn't understand but they did praise him, didn't they? And while Luke doesn't record it here, in Matthew, talks about the palm branches, why they're palms. They took palm branches, and palm branches were very important for the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, it was so important as a part of their national identity that they put the symbol of palm branches on their coins. That's how important the palm branch was. It symbolized one of the country's riches. So they were offering what was of great value. But palms and palm trees and palm branches were also of necessity for their daily living. It was a necessity. They represented a gift from God. So what they were laying down before him was something of great value and great necessity. And they praised him with a loud voice for all of the wonderful things they had seen him do. The marvelous works, bringing sight to the blind, healing the lame, feeding the 5,000, changing water into wine, raising Lazarus from the dead. And you can imagine, you've seen the movies and the pictures where there's this huge crowd just praising him. And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. To say that he came in the name of someone means he represents him. You know, we don't have that anymore. I mean, we don't have people saying, in the name of Right? I mean, I suppose maybe ambassadors, United Nations, that sort of things, representing him. But here they're saying he is the king representing, coming directly with full authority of God. And again, they thought he was going to restore the nation of Israel to its glory, the conquering king. And yet they didn't even know, even though they said it, I wonder if they realized it when they said peace in heaven and glory in the highest. See, a lot of us kind of think about Jesus maybe as king, but if you really received him as the full king who he is, and when you receive the king of peace, you should rejoice. 
And you really should lift up your voices, just as the crowd did bless the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But this king, though there is rejoicing, there's also weeping. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The Pharisees were not impressed. They kind of thought that this was a show, a theatrical display, so to speak, of Jesus coming in, and it was sacrilegious. Remember, this was to be the feast of Passover, one of the holy feasts that God had ordained, and now Jesus seems to be making a mockery leading up to this feast. But Jesus knew that even if all the disciples, even if all the crowd was quiet, all of creation would cry out his name. Because all of the creation, even the very stones themselves, knew that he was the king of all creation. See, there are only two times in the Gospels, only two times in Scripture, where it says that Jesus wept. Do you remember the first one? When Lazarus died, Jesus wept. And the second one is here on Palm Sunday. Now, when Jesus wept for Lazarus, you know that this is a heartfelt cry. You know that his, he is truly saddened, sorrowful that his friend Lazarus had died. But when he weeps over Jerusalem, it is a lament. It is a deep, wailing grief over what is happening. He is lamenting like one of the prophets of old. One translator would put the words like this, Jesus burst into tears. He said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's saying that their spiritual ignorance is killing them. He's the only one who can actually bring peace, and they are rejecting him. I don't know about you, when, when you share your faith, if you share your faith, there are people who are simply apathetic about Jesus. Some people who are really just hardened. And some people just callous, they don't even think about them anymore. And there are times when I've met people that my heart aches for them. They are given the message of the gospel and they don't hear it. They don't receive it. 
And you just want to weep sometimes. Jesus is weeping for all the people who reject him. The king of peace is weeping for them. And like a prophet of old, he gives them a prophecy. He says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade all around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The Lord gives a prophecy about an unrepentant holy city that now will become a pile of rubble wet with blood. And this is what happened. In A.D. 70, the Romans came and sieged Jerusalem for 143 days. They killed over 600,000 Jews, taking more captive, and they destroyed the city and the temple. The ancient historian Josephus says this, Caesar had already commanded the entire city and temple to be razed to the ground, leaving only the towers which projected higher than the others to stand, and that part of the wall which enclosed the city to the, on the west. This was to be the encampment for the troops which would be left behind, and the towers were to reveal to posterity how great a city Jerusalem had been, and what sort of fortifications Roman prowess had dominated. All the rest of the wall which was encompassed, which encompassed the city, the demolition teams leveled so that no one who would come there in the future would ever believe that that spot had been inhabited. The destruction was so terrible that the city was stormed and burned. Josephus records that the victorious Roman general Titus threw his arms heavenward and uttered a groan and called to God to witness that this was not his doing. There was weeping. Jesus knew what would happen. They did not know the day of God's visitation. You see, in the Old Testament, when there was a day of visitation, it could mean one of two things. It could mean salvation had come to that person, to that town, to the people. And the people would rejoice because of the Lord's visitation, but it could also mean that there was condemnation because they did not recognize that God had come, and thus there was weeping. Jesus was weeping because the people, in their spiritual ignorance and their blindness, would be destroyed. This is Palm Sunday. Rejoicing and weeping. So the question is for you. Do you know Jesus, your king, now, I know a lot of people know Jesus as friend, Jesus as comforter, Jesus as my God, as long as he doesn't demand anything of me, as long as he doesn't say, well, deny yourself, 
pick up your cross daily and follow me. That Jesus I don't want. I'll follow Jesus. I'll have Jesus as my king. As long as there isn't any condemnation, as long as there isn't any hell, I'll, 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 I'll put out the palm branches for my king as long as he doesn't ask anything of me. Or as long as he gives me personal peace, but that righteousness. See, maybe the better question is, have you received him as your full king? The other question this morning is, do you weep? Do you weep over your own sin? Because I will tell you, the closer you draw to Christ, the more you follow him, the more odious sin becomes. And you weep over your own sin. Not only that, do you weep over the sin in your neighborhood, in this city, in this country, in the world? Do you lament? Now, I'm not saying we wallow in our lamentations. I'm not saying that at all. As a matter of fact, we rejoice. Do you rejoice in your king? Do you rejoice in the message? This is the message that Jesus, our king, has overcome death. That through him, we have peace with God. We are declared righteous because of what he has done. We are given the promise of eternal life with our king in heaven. Do you rejoice in that? Or do you just wave your palm branch? Have you received your king? Do you weep over sin? Do you rejoice in the promise and life that we have in Jesus? This is Palm Sunday. It is a day of juxtaposition. It is a day that we ultimately do rejoice. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you have done for us for all that you gave to us, for the promise we have in you. Fill us this day with your truth, your righteousness, your salvation, and your spirit. This we pray in your name. Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com. God's peace and joy in Christ Jesus be with you.